Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. It's our fourth week of this special shortlist celebration. We're focusing on foreign correspondent Christina Lamb's book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women. Christina Lamb has worked in war and combat zones for more than 30 years. Our Bodies, Their Battlefield is the first major account to address the scale of rape and sexual violence in modern conflict. She gives voice to the women of conflicts, exposing how in today's warfare, rape is used by armies, terrorists and militias as a weapon to humiliate, oppress and carry out ethnic cleansing. Prize director Toby Mundy recently spoke with Christina Lamb via Zoom in London. I'll leave you with them to hear some more. Um, I'm delighted in this uh, conversation to welcome Christina Lamb, the chief foreign correspondent of the Sunday Times, um, who is the author of um, a remarkable and original and important book called Our Bodies, Their Battlefields, What War Does to Women. Um, welcome, Christina, and many, many congratulations. Thank you. I'm very excited to be shortlisted amongst so many great books. Well, it, it, this, is a, this is a worthy candidate for the prize and, and the judges have a very difficult choice, I think. Um, so this is, I've never read a book quite like this. Um, and I'm lucky enough by having the job as the director of this prize to, to have a sort of an overview of everything that's happening in nonfiction. And I think you produced a completely original book which is very hard to do tell us a little bit about where the idea for this book came from and what and what you tell people when they ask you what it's about <laughs> um so i have worked as a foreign correspondent for 33 years and um, mostly in bad places with conflict and bad people doing bad things and I've always been really interested in um, what happens to women in war, um, not so interested in the actual fighting or the bang bang, but more in, in the people sort of trying to keep life together behind the lines. And that's actually always millions of people. And I've always thought that that was actually the most heroic thing in war. So I've always spoken to women a lot. And then in recent years, the last five or six years, I have come across more brutality against women, um, sexual violence, um, rape being used as a weapon of war than at any time in 33 years of doing this job. And to be honest, I was just baffled. I couldn't understand how in the 21st century that this was happening so much and so many really horrendous things and why nobody seems to be doing anything about it. So I started talking to more and more people and trying to find out why it was happening, where it was happening and what anybody was trying to do about it. So it didn't really initially start as a book, it was more just me really angry actually and wanting to know what was happening and when you talk about rape in your book you don't these these are not um sort of arbitrary acts of 
in individual violence and barbarism, are there? You talk about rape as a, a weapon system, I think, at one point towards the end of the book. What what do you mean by that as a, when you call it a weapon system, an instrument of an instrument of so I mean, unfortunately, it's a very effective weapon if you want to um, make people leave a village or humiliate people, if you want to take over territory, you want to change the ethnic balance. Um, it, it's a very effective way of doing it. And it's also very cheap. It costs less than a Kalashnikov bullet to the perpetrators. So um, unfortunately, it's being used a lot and for different reasons, sometimes ideological, sometimes ethnic, um, sometimes religious reasons. All of the cases I looked at were, were quite different motivations. But in each of the cases I looked at, it was people specifically being told to go and rape women um, and sometimes men which is actually even more taboo but I really focused on on women because otherwise I think um, it would never have ended maybe that's a topic for another book but it is just the really um, horrendous the scale that it's happening on. Towards the end of your book, I think perhaps even in your epilogue, you, you go and see Titus Andronicus, which wouldn't be my idea of unwinding after writing a book of this kind. But there we are. You go and see Titus Andronicus and Lavinia in that play is, I mean, it's an astonishingly brutal and violent play, isn't it? But Lavinia is raped and has her tongue cut out, I think. And she, she finds a way to give voice to what's happened to her. And in a sense, perhaps you think your book is also, a, a, I mean, your book is clearly a, an attempt to give voice to people who have otherwise been utterly voiceless, haven't isn't isn't haven't they rather i mean anthony beaver said this is the proper history of war um what does that clearly that's a huge part of your modus operandi in this book isn't it yeah i mean i wanted i, I mean i've always thought of what i do is as a storyteller i go to places and i'm trying to bring back the stories of people that i meet because it's a lot easier for people to understand things that are happening in faraway places that you might not otherwise care about through the story of often of just one person. So, um, but in this case, actually I told a lot of stories because I wanted to give a sense of just the scale on which it was happening. And honestly, I could have spent the rest of my life, I think, working on this book because it's just happening in, in so many places and uh, there were places that in the end I I didn't go to because um, I would never have finished. And the scale it, that you report is boggles the mind. Um, I mean you travel from you talk about you, you talk about so-called comfort women don't you in, in Japan, uh, Korean women uh, uh, taken hostage by the Japanese and then uh, but ben, uh, you go to Bengal, don't you, and it's Islamic State. And but was it, is it right to say that it was the story of the Yazidis that really, I mean, even shocked even you, if you like, after despite all the places that you've been to and things that you've reported. It was because in um, twenty fifteen, during the refugee crisis, lots of refugees coming into Europe. And I was traveling in the Greek islands where lots of the refugees had ended up. 
and I was on a, a small island called Leros, which is a strange island because it's a place that Mussolini used as a base um, when it was under Italian control. And so it doesn't really look like other Greek islands. The architecture is, is all um, from his time and very brutalist. And also this island's famous or infamous, should I say, for a um, asylum, which was considered to be the, the most uh, shocking conditions of any um, mental asylum in, in Europe and was actually closed down in the end. And so the camp where the refugees were being kept was right next to the ruins of this asylum. And um, this group of Yazidis met me in the ruins because as it later turned out, they were actually being terrorized by other people in the camp. So they didn't want to speak there. And so the place was already a really eerie kind of place to me. It was full of all, like the rafters were coming down. There was holes in the floor. Um, there were all the old, old iron bedsteads that people had been kept chained to. And it was very hot and inside that asylum I met this small group of mainly women and children and it was quite clear that something really really awful had happened to them, like the light had gone out of their eyes and the women, the mothers were not noticing when the children were almost falling in these holes and it became clear that they'd gone through such terrible experiences and they started telling me about being taken by ISIS fighters and kept as sex slaves. So they were being taken to a place called the Galaxy Market, um, which was basically a latter-day slave market and they were separated into groups whether they were considered ugly or beautiful. And then these fighters would come through and touch their hair and their breasts and decide which one to take with them. And, and some of these girls had been passed from one person to another. And I just never heard stories like that. And in fact, they then put me in touch with some other girls who'd been rescued and actually taken to Germany for help. And I met them in a remote part of um, a state called Baden-Württemberg in the forest in this place that they were being sheltered in and they the stories that those women told me one of them was a 16 year old girl and she told me that she'd been kept by this fat ISIS judge and he raped her every day but she said that the worst night of her life was when he brought back a 10 year old girl and raped her in the room next door and she listened to the girl crying for her mother the whole night. I mean, these are stories that are just almost impossible to listen to or imagine. Yes, no, I, 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 absolutely. Um, it is, it's, it's, um, it's a very hard book to read, but it's also utterly gripping and compelling. And although I, I found it hard to read more than a chapter at a time, I think in a way, it's designed to be read that way. It's not a. It's not a book. It's not a book to be designed to be wolfed down, but to be taken slowly and carefully and to, and to reflect upon afterwards. I think. No, I mean, I it talk... seems odd to, to write a book that's hard to read, but it. I just feel you know, just because something's uncomfortable doesn't mean that we 
shouldn't read about them or talk about them. And if we don't, these things are never going to stop. Well, indeed. And I want to ask you a little bit about um, the, the writing of the book uh, in a moment. But before that, would you would you be kind enough to read a little bit from the book for us? Yeah, I'm going to read you um, about a Yazidi that I met in, in a, a camp and she told me what happened to her. They put the names in the bowl and began to draw them out. 10 names, 10 girls. The girls quivered like kittens caught under a dripping tap. For them, this was no lucky dip. The men pulling out the slips of paper were fighters from Islamic State and each would take a girl as a slave. Naima stared at her hands, blood pounding in her ears. The girl next to her was younger than her, about 14, and mewling with fear. But when Naima tried to hold her hand, one of the men whipped off his belt and lashed them apart. That man was older and larger than the others, around 60, she guessed, with a belly cascading over his trousers and a vicious curl to his lips. By then, she had been nine months in Isis captivity. She knew none of them were kind, but she prayed that one didn't pick her name. Naima. The man who read out her name was Abu Danun. He looked younger, almost like her brother, the hair on his chin still fluff. Maybe he would have less cruelty in his heart. The draw continued. The fat man picked out the young girl next to her, but then he said something to the others in Arabic, pulled out two crisp hundred dollar notes and slapped them onto the table. Abu Danun shrugged, pocketed the money and handed over his slip of money of paper. Minutes later, the fat man was shoving her into his black land cruiser and driving through the streets of Mosul, a city she had once dreamed of visiting, but which was now the capital of these monsters who had swept into her homeland and abducted her and six of her brothers and sisters, among thousands of others. She stared through the tinted windows. An old man sitting on a cart was whipping a donkey to jerk it forward, and people were out shopping, though the only women in the streets were in black hijab. It was strange to see everyday life still going on for other people, almost like watching a movie. Her captor was an Iraqi called Abdul Habib, and he was a mullah. The religious ones were the worst. He did everything to me, she later recounted, hitting, sex, pulling my hair, sex, everything. I was refusing, so he forced me and hit me. He said, you are my Sabiya, my slave. After that, I just lay there and tried to float my mind above my body as if it was happening to someone else, so he couldn't steal all of me. He had two wives and a daughter, but they did nothing to help me. In between pleasing him, I would have to do all the housework. After a month or so, Abdul Hasib sold her for $4,500 to another Iraqi called Abu Allah, a healthy prophet. Abu Allah ran a cement factory and had two wives and nine children. It was the same thing, forcing me to have sex, but then he took me to the house of his friend, Abu Suleiman, and sold me for $8,000. Abu Suleiman sold me to Abu Daoud, who kept me for a week. Then he sold me to Abu Faisal, who was a bomb maker in Mosul. In the end, she was sold to 12 different men. She lists them one by one, their nom de guerre and their real names, even their children's names, all of which she had committed to memory. She was determined they would pay. 
To be sold like that from one to another as if we were goats was the worst, she said. I tried to kill myself, to throw myself out of a car. Another time I found some tablets and I took the lot, but still I woke up. I felt even death didn't want me. It's incredible and astonishingly uh, disturbing. So the book is an act of bearing witness. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> the book is an act of bearing witness and it's a corrective, if I suppose, that gives voice to the voiceless. It's also a call for justice, isn't it? And a description of the battle for justice. And I'd like, if, if, I, if we can, to talk a little bit about that. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the, there are some tiny glimmers of light in this extremely dark firmament um, that, come, that come on and occasionally go out again. Tell us a little bit about, about the pursuit of justice, but perhaps about some of the people um, uh, pursue, trying to pursue justice for these horrendous, horrendous crimes. I was very struck by Bakira, for example, the hunter of war criminals. Tell us perhaps a little bit about, about her. I thought, she, I thought she was extraordinary. So the women in this book are incredibly courageous. And I mean, this book is about a fight for justice. Um, this, these things are happening because of impunity and because it's so difficult to get justice. It's, as you know, it's actually very difficult to get convictions for rape, even in this country. So imagine in places where perpetrators actually have the weapons, have the power, and these are women that don't have access often to to money or lawyers or any help. But what was very interesting was, I think for many of us, when you think about rape in war, people think about Bosnia because that was the first time often that we'd heard about it. And in the nineties, and people were really shocked at the idea that there were rape camps in, in the center of Europe and people said never again. And there was an international tribunal after um, the war ended and um, some of the main war criminals were arrested. So I, in my mind, had imagined that people had been brought to justice for all these rapes and somewhere between 20 and 50,000 women um, were raped, Bosnian Muslims mostly, by Serbs. So when I went there, um, I went to talk to some of the women and to my astonishment, they told me that actually very few people had been convicted and that they often saw their perpetrators in coffee shops, in hotels, or still working in police forces, and how difficult it was to keep seeing those people every day. Sure, and so one of the women, um, one of the women, Bakira, who's just the most amazing woman, who'd been raped three times by different people, during the war and also her daughter, which was what she found even hardest. Um, so she was determined that actually these people should be should pay for what they did. They shouldn't just be able to continue living um, and actually also even kind of laughing at mocking them and saying we want to finish off what we started. So she spoke out and got other women to speak out. But more than that, they actually then shared um, information about their perpetrators and photographs of them and tried to track them down and then um, went to the prosecutor's office first of all when it was an international tribunal then more recently that the cases have been prosecuted in Bosnia um, and she's just a force of nature she knows every single extension of every phone every mobile number in all the prosecutor's offices so they cannot 
escape her. Um, and she and her organization have brought more than a hundred men to justice, which is just amazing. She's extraordinary. Um, extraordinary, I, I thought actually. And a hunt, she calls herself the hunter of war criminals, doesn't she? Yes. Yeah. Nice? <laughs> and tell us, tell us, tell us about the um, Akayishu uh, Akayishu judgment in, uh, which I think was about twenty. Yeah. Sorry about my pronunciation, which was about twenty years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that and tell us why it, why it matters so much? So the, actually, the very first place where um, rape was convicted as a, a war crime was in Rwanda, not Bosnia, and it was um, in the late 90s. And um, what was very interesting, and I think this is one of the problems, that you know, rape has been going on in war for as, you know, as long as we've had records of things. The very first history book, Herodotus, starts with the abductions of women by the Greeks and the Phoenicians. And, um, so, and people, lots of people, when I said I was working on this, said, well, you know, rape in war is nothing new. But the fact is, just because it's been going on for a long time doesn't mean that it's right. <laughs> and the, uh, actually, it is a war crime. And yet, at the end of wars, it's very rarely prosecuted. And notoriously, the end of the Second World War, um, and Anthony Beaver has written very uh, movingly and graphically about this. I mean, as many as two million women were raped in Germany by the Russian forces. Um, and yet, in the first ever international tribunal in Nuremberg, uh, this wasn't discussed at all. So this is the kind of precedent that we've set, that, that somehow at the end of war, when you're resolving things that rape doesn't matter, only the killing. And yet for almost every woman that I spoke to who'd gone through this told me that they would rather have died than lived with what they had gone through. So actually the first time that anyone managed to bring this to justice was this amazing group of Rwandan women um, from a, a small town just an hour outside of Kigali um, and um, these are women that have nothing, that live in really humble one-room huts um, and not able to read or write when they did this. And um, basically what happened was this mayor of the town was tried and he wasn't tried for um, rape. He was tried for other things, for, for torture and, and genocide. And because, as you know, almost a million people were killed in 100 days in Rwanda in 94. But I mean, hundreds of thousands of women were raped as well. And so in this first case, a woman was testifying and she said, and then he raped me. And, um, and the prosecutor literally said, well, moving on, <laughs> um, like we're not interested in that. And fortunately, one of the three judges on the bench was a woman, a, an amazing South African woman called Navi Pile. And she said, well, hang on a minute, this woman has come to testify, let's hear what she has to say. So she said, what do you mean you were raped? And she said, yeah, lots of people were raped. There was, everybody knows there were all these rapes going on in the town hall. And so actually in the end, they stopped the case and, um, reframed it including the charges of 
um, of war rape and this group of women then risked their lives literally to go and testify about what happened to them. Gosh, and it's become very important, that judgment, even though it was 20 years ago, is that right? It has, because it's, you know, it's the first time, and so it sets um, precedent in international law. But the sad thing is, I went to see these women, and they literally changed history. But they're still living in really miserable conditions, and they also felt, um, they didn't complain about that, but they complained about, they thought by doing this, that they were going to stop this happening and they said we can't understand why is this we heard about the Yazidis and why is this happening to other people after we did this. Hmm. Um, can we just talk a little bit about how the book is written because the Bailey Gifford Prize is a literary prize of course as well as uh, something else and the book the writing is, is ex extraordinary and you are you were you are in this book ploughing entirely new territory so what did you take what who were your literary inspirations or what did you take as your and what did you take as your models for this book how did you set about writing this I'm not sure that I really had any model I mean to be honest when I started doing it I assumed that other people would have written about this because it is so wide scale and I was I mean I think it's shocking that this isn't hasn't been written about before and I mean there have been sort of specific like people writing about what happened in Bosnia but um, and initially I thought it would be maybe more powerful to just tell the story through a few people but then I decided I didn't want to do that because I wanted to make people realize how wide scale it was so there are a lot of people, I don't paraphrase what people say, um, I could have written it maybe more in a more literary way if I'd done that, but I thought it was really important for women's stories to be told as they wanted them to Their be told, voices, for it to be authentic. I mean, I, I'm a great fan of the work of Svetlana Alexievich, who writes, you know, these incredible sort of um, who's from Belarus, who writes these sort of almost, it's hard to describe, but like pastiche of, of um, all the people that she interviews, it's telling a sort of narrative. It's a isn't that. it? A brick, yeah. a bricolage of voices. She was shortlisted for the prize a couple of years ago, actually, yeah. yeah. Remarkable writer. And so she's an inspiration for you, is she? Or she's a sort of literary inspiration? Yeah. Are there any others? I mean, are there other, other writers who you felt you were channeling at times or who influenced the way you... You wrote this book not really in in this i just was really determined to tell the stories in the way that the women themselves wanted to to tell it and i think it was also important that for them not just to be there the trauma and what happened to them but actually to know a bit more about them and what their dreams were and you know and the story about them not just be the terrible thing that happened to them hmm. but I think in a way the most one of the most moving um, group of women I met was in the Philippines because I went to I mean um, find out what had happened to the first um, well the first group of women really to start fighting for justice were the women who were kept as so-called comfort women who were taken by the Japanese army yeah. after this uh, during the second world war and women across southeast asia 
Um, and so these women are really old now. Um, they're in their late 80s, and their grandmothers and great grandmothers. And they have been fighting like 70 years to not just get justice, but even acknowledgement. The history books in their country don't mention what happened to them. And when they managed to raise money uh, to put a statue in honor of the comfort women in Manila, um, the government took it down within four months. So and these women know there's very few of them left now and they know that they'll probably die without ever getting justice for what happened to them, but they're still fighting on. And I think in, in a way, I mean, the sad thing about all of this is that there are some positive stories. There are uh, justice and particularly in recent years where people have managed to um, get their perpetrators convicted. But those cases almost always through the remarkable determination and persistence and courage of a small group of women, it, it's like, it's the exception rather than the rule. And that's what needs to change. That's all the that's all the all we have time for, I'm afraid. Um, it's an ex extraordinary book and it's been a privilege to talk to you about it. Many congratulations on writing it and on being shortlisted for this book prize. And thank you so much, Christina, for telling us about it now. Thank you very much for talking to me. That is all we have time for in this special mini podcast of Read Smart. Thank you to Toby and to Christina. To keep up to date with our weekly shortlist celebration ahead of the winner announcement on the 24th of November, do follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And do tune in next week to our special Wednesday and Friday evening watch parties featuring further interviews with the shortlisted authors, experts and, of course, the judges. We'll be back next week for a special conversation with Amy Stanley, author of Stranger in the Shogun City a woman in 19th century Japan. Thanks, of course, always to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support of Read Smart. Bye-bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.